Our inability to think long-term is encapsulated in a system we barely notice. It's in the way that we write the year, 2023. Implicit in that number is that when we come to 9,999, I'm not sure how you'd say that, 9999, there's nowhere left to go. It's the end of time. We're done. We've programmed into our life that we can't go beyond, we can't imagine beyond 8,000 or so years into the future. 8,000 years, that is, that's nothing. That's the tiniest of blips, definitely for a geological age, but even just for a species. I mean, tortoises have been around, can you guess, for 200 million years. Platypuses, my, one of my favorite Australian creatures, they've been around for 110 million years. What is 8,000 years in all of that? I'm a member of an organization called The Long Now, and as well as building a clock in the U.S. desert, which is designed to keep time uh, non-mechanically for 10,000 years, they also write the date with an extra digit. So in Long Now time, we are in 02023. Again, I'm not totally sure how to say that. Maybe that's why it hasn't really caught on, but I love the idea. We're in 02023. They've expanded our now from a 10,000-year span, of which we're already used up 2,000, to one that is 100,000 years. That act feels like, metaphorically at least, a moment of me lifting my eyes to the horizon to remember the journey ahead. I get to stop staring a few feet ahead of me, eyes fixed to the path. I mean, there's plenty to think about this day, this week, this month. But when I look to the horizon... I remember there's a bigger game afoot. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Peter Brannan is a Boston Celtics fan. That's fine. I like the Celtics as well. He's also a placental mammal. (laughs) Now, to explain that unusual intro, in part at least, Peter is an author and a science journalist who contributes to The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and others as well. Now, Peter has always loved science, but it was almost a road not taken. I went to college and I was really interested in science, but um, you know, I probably shouldn't share this story, but my brother had gone to the same college before me, and I always thought he had a better analytical mind than I did, and he got something like an F in organic chemistry, so that scared me off. And instead, I took the easy way out and was an English major because I figured I like reading literature. Now, as someone who studied literature myself, this was clearly the right decision. But Peter was wooed back to science. I guess when you're fascinated with dinosaurs and you love exploring nature and you love playing in the ocean, well, that is competition versus Shakespeare and James Joyce and Toni Morrison. However, he may have gone to science, but the influence of literature continues, not just because he became a journalist, although I do believe that to become a good writer, you have to be a good reader. But really, you see it in his understanding of stories and of time. Climate science is often presented as if it's just this thing that happens on computer models and it's all in the future. And I learned that there is this sort of, you know, half the story was how the Earth's responded in its past to climate change. So that really got me. I went down that wormhole, you know, 10 years ago, and I haven't come out of it. 
I discovered Peter through his book, The Ends of the World, which is about the five biggest mass extinctions on our planet. Now, before we hit record, he said a phrase that kind of summed the book up and grabbed my attention. On an old enough planet, everything has happened before. I spent a couple of years hanging out with paleontologists who were sort of detectives on the you know, the crime scenes of the worst things that had ever happened. And they're trying to put the pieces together of what went wrong in these um, apocalypses that happened tens of millions of years ago. Um, and the punchline sort of was that, you know, if some of the same levers we're pulling today were pulled in these old events only, you know, instead of power plants and tailpipes, the CO2 was coming out of these once in a hundred million year volcanic events. In weaving together the story of how these events happened with the science of why they happened, there's a way Peter has become mission-driven in his work. You understand the past, you tell stories of the past, so you can preserve the future. You know, I'd always seen, you know, these salt ponds near the oceans as just very, very beautiful natural habitats and learning that, you know, in the last half century, 90% of the eelgrass has disappeared and from pollution and stuff. So this, I mean, this is very <laughs> gloomy stuff, but, yeah, um, you know, it's, unless you are aware of what you're looking at, you can go around the world sort of blind to what's been lost. And so yeah. part of my, I guess, project is to sort of illuminate to people like this is what we've already done. And, um, yeah. but I would say, I would say like in the more optimistic realm, I would, the book is kind of catastrophic and apocalyptic, but it also, <laughs> it also demonstrates that, you know, we, this is maybe the most interesting or exciting time to be alive because we still have, it, we're not as bad as the asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs yet. Like we still have time to write the ship and it all depends on how we act sort of in the next few decades, uh, could have this long geological legacy. Yeah. So how do you, how do you strike the balance? If, if, it, if indeed this is even the right language between optimism and pessimism, you've used both of those words so far in, in this conversation. And I'm wondering where you, how you walk in the world with both of those things. Yeah. Well, I think something of a coping mechanism is I've heard people say that my book is pretty funny, which I think was, you know, there is a it lot is. of gallows humor in it, which is kind of, maybe that's just me dealing with the, I don't know, cognitive dissonance or something, but I don't know. I think I'm maybe to a fault good at compartmentalizing yeah. sort of just interest in the science with the, uh, you know, what it actually means. Um, right. I'm, I'm interested in climate and earth science more from a you know, scientific perspective, uh, that we are running this incredibly unprecedented chemistry experiment on the planet. And, yeah. you know, there's still a lot of uncertainty how it's going to end up. And also, I mean, the geological stuff, I, I, I think it sort of scratches, like you learn about these planets that are so different than our own that it almost, for me, scratches the same itch as like science fiction. And I was always yeah. into science fiction and, you know, learning that, you know, the rock under your foot was once at the bottom of the ocean and was patrolled by these crazy sea monsters, you know, yeah. So I think that was another reason why I got really interested in, in that particular side yeah. of the story too. Well, I, I had the same sense of, this is extraordinary whilst reading your book. I mean, I was just before we started recording, I was looking at the picture again of the, uh, the Dakin traps wow. and just how, you know, there was enough volcanic activity to cover the entire United States to what the depth of like 600 meters or something ridiculous. Yeah. 600 feet. And there's another, uh, there's another volcanic event I talk about in the book. Um, it's inside, like the remnants of it today are in Siberia. They're these vast plateaus of basalt. And they all, yeah. it was all erupted out of the ground around 252 million years ago. 
caused the worst mass extinction in Earth history, but it erupted enough lava to cover the lower 48 United States a kilometer deep. That one. So, yeah, I mean, these, <laughs> so, it's, these things just, are just mind just a lot of lava going on there. <laughs> for, 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 yeah. Hey, Peter, what book did you choose to read for us? So I chose uh, Teaching a Stone to Talk by Annie Dillard. This is um, great. I haven't heard of this book. How did it come into your life? I had been recommended. She wrote a book called Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, which won the Pulitzer Prize um, in the that, 70s yeah. at some point. And it had been recommended to me a bunch. And one time I was sitting in a bookstore. I think I was waiting for like a train or something. And, you know, I had an hour to kill. And I, a few people had recommended it to me and I saw it on the shelf and I just pulled it off the shelf and I started reading it. And I was just totally blown away by her language and her approach to writing, which I wouldn't, she's not a science writer and I wouldn't even really call her a, a I guess she's in some way she's a nature writer, but she just writes in this ecstatic style. Um, yeah. I, I read so much like sort of dull academic prose that sometimes I worry that sort of my my ability to write or, you know, think about things and capture that original sort of flame of curiosity that I have about the subject can sort of be dulled when you get too right. in the weeds and read. And I you return... Don't to, you're, you don't want to be covered by a kilometer of scientific, <laughs> academic, yeah. basalt prose, which is right. <laughs> a, heavy, a heavy load. Yeah. So sometimes I will re return to her writing sort of to... Oh, um, I love that because she's just like on fire with cosmic awe and like everything she writes. Um, Period. And so this is a book of essays and they're all good. There's one at the beginning about seeing a solar eclipse, which is just one of my favorite pieces of writing ever. But I chose a different section because it talks about geology and rocks and stuff. And it is more kind of overlaps with the things that I, my yeah. writing covers for the most part. So that's brilliant. It's a great setup. Yeah. So she's talking about how. Um, species that get separated by geography or animals that get separated by geography can become new species. This is like a well-known uh, phenomenon in, in evolutionary biology. Um, and she's on the Galapagos Islands when she writes this. So should I just start right I now? I think you should okay. plunge on in. All right. It's a better place to start than the Galapagos Islands. Okay. And you can tell a like blue, even... A blue-footed <laughs> booby, I think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But again, her writing is very strange and it's not just straightforward prose. Like sometimes it's, it almost reads like poetry, but it's written on the page in paragraphs. So it's, it's pretty yeah, interesting. Fantastic. Geography is life's limiting factor. Speciation, life itself, is ultimately a matter of warm and cool currents, rich and bare soils, deserts and forests, fresh and salt waters, delta and jungles and plains. Species arise in isolation. A plaster cast is as intricate as its mold. Life is a gloss on geography. And if you dig your fists into the earth and crumble geography, you strike geology. Climate is the wind of the mineral earth's rondure, tilt, and orbit, modified by local geological conditions. The Pacific Ocean, the Negev Desert, and the rainforest in Brazil are all local geological conditions. So are the slow carp pools and splashing trout riffles of any backyard creek. It is all, God help us, a matter of rocks. The rocks shape life like hands around swelling dough. In Virginia, the salamanders vary from mountain ridge to mountain ridge. So do the fiddle tunes the old men play. All this is because it is hard to move from mountain to mountain. These are not merely anomalous details. This is what life is all about. Salamanders, fiddle tunes, you and me and things, the split and burr of it all, the fizz into particulars. No mountains and one salamander, one fiddle tune, would be a lesser world. No continents, no fiddlers. 
the earth without form is void. The mountains are time's machines. In effect, they roll out protoplasm like printer's rollers pressing out news. But life is already part of the landscape, a limiting factor in space. Life too shapes life. Geology's rocks and climate have already become Brazil's rainforest, yielding shocking bright birds. To say that all life is an interconnected membrane, a weft of linkages like chainmail, is truism. But in this case too, the Galapagos Islands afford a clear picture. On Santa Cruz Island, for instance, the saddleback carapaces of tortoises enable them to stretch high and reach the succulent pads of prickly pear cactus. But the prickly pear cactus on that island and on other tortoise islands have evolved a tree-like habit. Those lower pads get harder to come by. Without limiting factors, the two populations could stretch right into the stratosphere. Saba, it goes on everywhere, tit for tat, action and reaction, triggers and inhibitors, ascending in a spiral like spatting butterflies. Within life, we are pushing each other around. How many animal forms have evolved just so because there are, for instance, trees? We pass nitrogen around and vital gases, we feed a nest, plucking this and that and planting seeds. The protoplasm responds, nudged and nudging, bearing the news. And the rocks themselves shall be moved. The rocks themselves are not pure necessity, given like vast complex molds around which the rest of us swirl. They heave to their own necessities, to stirrings and prickings from within and without. The mountains are no more fixed than the stars. Granite, for example, contains much oxygen and is relatively light. It floats. When granite forms under the Earth's crust, great chunks of it bob up, I read somewhere, like dumplings. The continents themselves are beautiful pea-green boats. The Galapagos archipelago as a whole is surfing toward Ecuador. South America is sliding towards the Galapagos. North America, too, is sailing westward. We're on floating islands, shaky ground. So the rocks shape life, and then life shapes life, and the rocks are moving. The completed picture needs one more element. Life shapes the rocks. I figured I'd stop there. She goes into how, you know, life actually does change the composition and uh, form of rocks. And so. She is such a great writer. Holy <laughs> yeah. cow. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's occasionally I'll do very pale impressions of her when I'm writing, but I, she's just, she's incredible. Yeah. You know, as a, as a writer, as well as a reader, there are people who you read and you go, I wonder if one day I could write a sentence or two like that <laughs> right. because oh my goodness, that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, what is it about that that kind of gets you going? Because it's magical. She, I think it's that she put into words like something that I've had trouble putting into words, which is that, you know, there's geology and there's life and there's uh, the atmosphere and the oceans, but sure. that it's all part of sort of a contiguous whole and they all are uh, interacting with each other and forming each other. And, and it is sort of just this, you know, I don't know. It's what I write about is how how geological things have affected life and how life has driven geology. And she just puts yeah. it into sort of a poetry that I I have not been able to in, in my own writing, and, and sort of ties <laughs> ties the threads together for me that are really interesting. Like even the part about um, how on different sides of the mountains in the Appalachians there's different species of salamander. I'm actually hoping to write a story soon where I, there's people that go out and study how tectonics drive speciation and, and right. things in the American Southeast with different fishes live on different sides of the mountains and things. And yeah, you and, need to, yeah. Um, you need to line each different section with a different fiddle song as well to <laughs> right. kind of yeah. like pay, pay homage to her around that. Yeah. Um, well, that's, that's another thing. I love that she draws sort of the human story into it too. Cause I yeah. sort of, especially in stuff I've been working on recently, I'm really trying to kind of bring down the 
the walls between human history and natural history and show that we're sort of yeah. part of part of this the same thing and so she does a good job of that there peter how do you stay connected to your sense of awe and adventure as part of i mean part of the work you do feels like it has access to that world and like every job there's a way that you it kind of gets shut down because of the the details and the technicalities right i'm wondering how you keep reconnecting to the thing that brought you to this work in the first place um well it's reading stuff like that um but also (laughs) getting out in nature i suppose i mean it's it's i'm in colorado now and it's it's very difficult not to be kind of overwhelmed with awe if you drive half an hour in any direction outside of boulder you'll be in some stark landscape that um, sort of forces you to be quiet and think about it and um recognize that you know it's not all about you (laughs) yeah i guess that the natural world sort of carries on its rhythms and yeah um so i don't know it's it's something that i feel like i'm diligent about trying to stay um i think my writing is at its best when i'm kind of connecting with that feeling so it's something that even in a professional sense it's important for me to to cultivate so i try to i'm not yeah yeah, I, I, I'm curious because I try and do the same myself and I'm like, I don't always succeed as long as I just get trapped by looking at my inbox. <laughs> yes. And I'm like, you know what? There's some interesting stuff in there, but there's a lot of stuff that's less interesting than um, you might think. Yeah, um, no, I, 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 I've been that way in the last few weeks. I've been in this beautiful natural environment and mostly just looking at my computer the whole time and I'm starting to get real antsy about wow. getting out again. Um one of the things that really struck me about your book, The Ends of the World, um, was just, again, a reminder of how poor I am at understanding time and how, um, you know, I remember um, Bill, Bill Bryson and his wonderful book, A Short History of Nearly Everything, you know, as a way of understanding geological time, it's like stretch your arms out. And if that's the, that's the, the span of time the earth has been around, humanity is but a fingernail clipping, if that. So, um, so I just wonder if you think there's any point in, and this is a weird question. So, <laughs> if it, if it, I mean, there may not be an answer to this, Peter, but I'm like, how do you sit with the with the vastness of time, and the is it even worth it to have a meaningful, active life? Because our lives are so, because we're Mayflower. I mean, we're not even Mayflowers in terms of the, the geological age of right. the, the world. So. Uh, yeah, I, it's a hard question to answer, and I don't have a good ready-made answer. But <laughs> I, I think it's, I think it's just like a category error or something when we start asking those questions, or when you right. start thinking about how the universe is going to end someday. So, what does it matter? In your own, yeah. What, what does your own life matter? I think. It, I mean we were evolved to live a few decades and care about the people around us and try to have as rich and, uh, I don't know, meaningful life as we can. And that's really our task. And it's, it's awe-inspiring that we're part of this bigger story, but I, I, I think there's a way to think about it that does not inspire nihilism, but yeah, something more like humility that, you know, there's been 
a lot of ages of life and a lot of life forms and they've all had their chance on this planet and what an amazing like what a incredible gift it is that we do have these few decades on this kind of miraculous place and so yeah yes if anything it's worth celebrating i mean honestly as much as i read your book and i'm like oh my goodness it's just it's it's so precarious it's also life is so precarious like it's just the stuff happens and then suddenly the ocean loses its oxygen (laughs) the volcanoes go on for several million years an asteroid happens but it's also extraordinary that life somehow keeps going, okay, I'll give it another shot. <laughs> Let's do a reboot and start again. Yeah, I've said that I could just as easily have, you know, pitched my book as not about the mass extinctions, but about the huge radiations afterwards, which are right. almost as, I mean, they're just as impressive that within a few million years, I the life or the world is totally populated with a brand new, um, you know, resplendent cast of characters and yeah. So, I mean, that is just as inspiring as the, the catastrophes are, you know, depressing, I guess. Where do you find your ideas for your next stories, the next things you write about? I mean, what, what pulls you forward? Um, well, writing the book, the research process for writing the book was going to all these conferences and going on all these field trips with all these scientists and just through that. And I did a, a fellowship at University of Colorado as well, um, where I was able to audit a bunch of classes and just sort of follow my curiosity. But yeah, just sort of the, you accumulate over kind of years of just going out there and speaking with people in the field and going on trips, sort of all these side uh, story ideas and things. And, you know, for the first book, I, I ended up sending them something like 30,000 pages more than they wanted. and they <laughs> And they made me cut it. And it was actually a good thing because I could tell that a lot of it was kind of just interesting digressions that I, I couldn't, I didn't have, I didn't have the heart to cut, but I ended up being able to use those as other stories. Um, and so, yeah, I write one book, get 10 stories for free. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) And, and there are the, like, there are these programs for journalists where they fellowships, where they introduce you to scientists. And I've had experiences where I go, I spend one week learning from scientists and I'll have story ideas for the next year or so. So, so. What do you hope we, as your audience, understand or understand better? What do you want us to get that we don't yet get? I think you kind of touched on it just now, which is the precarity. I think we kind of take uh, this planet for granted and we take the conditions that are um, salutary for life uh, as a given. And studying Earth history shows you just how, just what a miracle this place is. I mean, studying astronomy does that too. Uh, every every new exoplanet they find, they say, "Oh, it's Earth-like," and then they do run a few more. Uh, they analyze but, it like, but "Oh, not, it, but not that Earth-like." Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh, it has no atmosphere, and it's bombarded by uh, solar yes. flares every day. <laughs> um, and at this point, like, we have there was a recent story where, where William Shatner got a chance to go up to space. Right. And he came back somewhat depressed because he, he, he said something like, there's nothing up there and the earth is it, basically. Yeah. And I, I as a kid, I was obsessed with space, like and. most kids are in Star Wars and um, finding life on other planets. And the more I study earth, the more I have come to realize like just what an incredible, what cosmic luck we've had on and how precious this place is. So I... I think that is something that I try to 
convey to people that they might not understand. Um, and that I'm writing a second book, which is similar, it's similar in scope and subject matter to the first, but it is really how, you know, we hear about carbon dioxide as this, uh, in the news as this random industrial byproduct that just happens to come out of smokestacks. And, uh, the book I'm working on now is really about how it's kind of fundamental to how the planet works is the behavior of carbon dioxide on this planet. It's movement through the rocks and the oceans, the atmosphere and through life. Um, it's what makes earth earth. So it's kind of the one thing you don't, I mean, that that's why you don't really want to mess with it too much is that it's, it's, it's behavior on this planet is the, is the thing that makes the earth, the earth. So, right. That's another thing. If you add several extra parts per million to it, there's a chance that earth stops being the earth that we know. Uh, I mean, we could push ourselves into a climate state. It hasn't been in, in millions of years. Um, yeah, but yeah, I mean, it, CO2 kind of is miraculous. It, it keeps the planet warm. Like if you have a little bit enough of it, like it's such a strange amount, it's only 300 parts per million, which is so such a, a little amount, but it's not zero. If it was zero, we might be in a situation where the oceans are have a, are covered in ice and there wouldn't be any life on it. And right. if you go up only a few hundred parts per million, so not that much at all, uh, the last time that was the case, there were crocodiles at the Arctic Circle. So we have this really narrow kind of aperture uh, that we have been navigating for a few thousand years that is has allowed all of agriculture and civilization to spread up. And we're potentially pushing ourselves into this uh, yeah. state that we haven't been in a millions of years. There, there are so many things like that that I, I barely even know about, but um, it reminds me of um, the trace minerals that we have in our own body. You know, it's like yes. a tiny, tiny bit of, I'm not, I, I'm not even sure you probably know better than me, but you know, like. Yeah, manganese so, and stuff. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, manganese, yeah. yeah. And you're like, yeah. well, nobody's quite clear why you got 0.0003% of your body is magnesium, but it's, right. don't have it and you don't work. Yeah. 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 Well, there's some interesting ideas about that, uh, especially with the really weird parts of the periodic table that we still require in sort of the enzymatic centers of, uh, really important, you know, fundamental, uh, parts of our cell that, that might be a legacy of kind of the origin of life, which some people argue started at the bottom of the ocean where there was sort of this heavy metal rich, uh, stuff that, that life figured out a way how to yeah metabolize and come into being so it might be this legacy of you know four billion years ago at the bottom of the ocean (laughs) what else uh i mean i love that you you you're writing about carbon dioxide um and how it is just this extraordinary tiny bit in the atmosphere but it makes it makes all the difference you know a, a tiny nudge one way or the other way and life doesn't work what else have you discovered in your time where you're like that's just What's the right word here? You know, I, I, this is a, a digression. I remember re- reading Bill Bryson's book, which I, I really love, and then yes. going, look, here's the thing about tectonic plates. Not only do you, does it, not only are they kind of cool, so we have the, what's her, her word, kind of green, green things skipping across the ocean, and, you know, it allows you to have different salamanders and different valleys because yeah. of the way tectonic plates work. But he said, look, if, if you didn't have tectonic plates, over the millions and years and billions of years that the earth has been around it, we just get worn down flat, which means that 
at a bare minimum, it would be a an uh, a planet in, entirely covered by water because there'd just be no there'd be no land bits. Yeah. Um, so there might be life, but there wouldn't be podcasts, or at least not this right. type of podcast. Yeah. And it's just like these like random things that just make it likely that that life exists. And I'm wondering if there's other things you've un- uncovered where you're just going, that just is just a random thing that is somehow essential to life on Earth. Well, tectonic is actually a really good one because, yeah. um, you know, there might not be any really any life at all if it wasn't for for the ongoing uh, you know, right? churn of plate tectonics. Yeah. yeah. And now people looking at for life on other planets are starting to realize that how good we have it here and that plate tectonics might be really kind of important for uh, having a habitable world, which, yeah, you'd never suspect to think, oh, it makes, it moves the continents around and makes mountains and stuff. But what does that have to do with life? One thing it does is there's this uh, idea that it does regulate the climate over billions of years is uh, the erosion of, you get mountains pushed up into the sky and they get eroded down. Yeah. And in that erosion and weathering by weather, you you draw down CO2 um, right. on long time scales. So volcanoes are already always putting CO2 up into the air. And if there was no, uh, you know, there was no weathering of rocks, then it would just keep building up and it would get incredibly hot and it might be too hot for, for right. us to have this podcast. Um, <laughs> and... Yeah, and and there's also the continual uplift uh, and erosion delivers nutrients like phosphorus out to the ocean, and right. all life all life needs phosphorus. Uh, there's an idea that for you know a billion years of Earth history, there wasn't much life on the planet because uh, tectonics were all jammed up, and there just wasn't very much phosphorus getting delivered to the seas. Right. And then uh, you know at the beginning of animal life, it kind of kicks in high gear again, and suddenly you have all this life, and animal life takes off, and so it's. So, love this stuff. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's miraculous to me. Like, with I'm not spiritual or I, I'm an atheist, but you know, miracle is still the right word to to describe. I think this kind of extraordinary system that somehow makes life happen. I started this interview talking about long time, deep time. How to go beyond 10,000 years. You know, a previous guest on the podcast, Roman Krisnarek, talked about being a good ancestor. And for him, that was a smaller span, much smaller, just seven generations out. A future guest, somebody I've already talked to, but we haven't released the episode yet, is Zeta Cobb. And she talked to me about a hundred-year plan for the communities that she is looking to strengthen and seed and help flourish across Canada and the world. She talked about how do you optimize for the next generation? But along with all of that, all of which is essential, that ability to think longer term than we do at the moment, there was a line in this conversation with Peter which made me go still. Here it is. Unless you're aware of what you're looking at, you can go around the world blind to what's been lost. I suddenly remember growing up as a kid in Canberra. Summers meant, amongst all other things, butterflies stuttering their way through the back garden. I don't see those anymore. I'm not sure what that means. I'm not sure where they've gone or what's happened. I've just realized I don't see those anymore. This world is precarious and beautiful. 
It is an extraordinary planet. We are lucky to be alive. Perhaps we only start to being able to think about our future in an expansive way when we remember what was and what is not anymore. What do you notice might be missing? If this conversation caught your fancy, I've got a couple of others from the two pages back catalog to recommend. Roman Krasnarek, who I just talked about. Our conversation was called Hope for Tomorrow. He's Australian philosopher based in the UK, writes all sorts of great books, um, and I really loved his new one. And Azima Zah, who has a terrific newsletter talking about the power of exponential, and he is really kind of uh, one of the leading thinkers or journalists about probing the future. And that conversation was called What Technology Promises. If you want more of Peter, he is, as he says, hanging in there on Twitter, at Peter Brannon one so that's one, the number, P-E-T-E-R-B-R-A-N-N-E-N, number one. And his website is simply peterbrannon.com. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Thank you for loving it. Thank you for sharing it. Thank you for reviewing it. That just leads me to say you're awesome and you're doing great.